Well, good morning. It's hard to live up to that, so uh, we'll try to go from there. But it is uh, such an honor to be back with uh, Pastor and uh, be at this church. It's been a long time. I think the last time I was here, I was in the uh, small building over here. I don't know many of you remember being in the small building, but I was over in the small building. <laughs> so it's been a long time, but it's been so good to be here. Um, you know, there are times that the Bible makes a lot of sense. Have you ever just read it and it makes a lot of sense? And then there are times that stuff's going on and you start to think, oh, this doesn't make sense. You ever had some of those times? The rest of you liars, are, you're all going to hell. <laughs> there are times you read it and it's just like, wow, during good times it makes sense. But then when it doesn't quite line up with the reality of today, I start to wonder, well, I don't get this today. And this is one of those verses I read recently that was, that was uh, less uh, clear to me than the first time I read it when I was doing good. Romans chapter 8 in verse 28. For some of you, this is just a well-known passage of Scripture. And we know. Isn't that amazing? We know it. It's not something we think. It's not just an idea. It's something, a, a deep knowing. We know that in all things, not in some things, not when times are good, not when we're blessed, not when we're healthy, not when we're strong. We know that in all things, God works for good. Wow, now that sounds good. Those of you who just said, "Woo, you've had a good day. <laughs> but some of you have had a hard week. Some of you have had a few hard months. Some of you have had a really hard year and a half. Business isn't good. Family members have died. The world seems like it's in chaos. But then God says, we know that all things God works for the good to those who love him, to those who have been called according to his purpose. Just today I went through the news. I don't know if you saw in Afghanistan, in Kabul, the, the uh, capital of Afghanistan uh, just fell. After 20 years of war, to overthrow a uh, corrupt regime, a, a power that brought death, thousands of lives lost, and after 20 years, back where we started. In the nation of Haiti, there was an earthquake yesterday. Over 300 people died on an island that has suffered so much. 300 people died. In Germany, there's flooding. People are dying. On the West Coast, there's fires that are out of control. People are dying. There's hurricanes. There's tornadoes. There's weather. I mean, you, there's wars. There's rumors of wars. And in the middle of all of this, sometimes it's really hard for us to know, <laughs> to know that all things God works for the good. And sometimes our knowing is better than at other times, right? When times are good, our knowing is pretty good. When times are bad, our knowing gets kind of confusing. But just to let you off the hook, the, the Bible is filled with people who had this confusion. The, the psalmist David wrote, why do the heathen rage? Why are they, they and living at ease while all of us who love you are in trouble? God, why is it like this? Sometimes our knowing gets a little difficult. Sometimes it, it seems like darkness is growing 
It seems like we're, we're trying to wonder where is the light in all of this. So, so how are we to make sense of difficult situations and difficult times like this? How do we make sense? Just in India in the past few months, we lost over 20 pastors to COVID just in the last few months. And most of these pastors died because they were men and women of God who chose not to lock themselves away. They went in the homes. And in, in India, our healthcare system is a pastor. When somebody's sick, there's no hospital to go to. There's no medicine to take. When somebody's sick, they call their pastor. And they say, Pastor, I'm sick. Would you come and pray for me? And pastors go and they pray. And many of those pastors prayed and people were healed and yet they died. We have uh, over, that we know of, over 20 widows that lost their husbands, pastors to COVID. Dozens of orphans now. But we know in all things, God works for the good. So how can we know? So just to back up just a little bit, well, let's back up all the way. Let's back up all the way. The first thing you need to know if you're going to find good is this. God himself is good. So God is good. In the beginning, there is a refrain that is over and over in Scripture in Genesis chapter 1. And God created the heavens and the earth, and he saw that it was good. God created all the birds and the fish, and he saw it was God created all the animals, and he saw that it was God created man and woman, and he saw that it was everything God created in its nature, in its being, was good. The good God created us out of his goodness, and everything that God created was good. Now, there's only one thing in the book of Genesis that the Bible tells us was created that was not good. Who knows what wasn't good in Genesis chapter 1? What wasn't good? It is not good for man to be alone. Isn't that amazing? That you were created for community. You were not created for isolation. The greatest form of punishment you can give to someone is to lock them up alone. Why? Because we were not created to be alone. We used to sing this song, and I know Pastor would know this song. We used to sing this song, He's All I Need. He's All I Need. But the fact is, it's a heretical song. Jesus is not all you need. You try to live with just Jesus without water, you're going to die. <laughs> you try to live with Jesus without any food, without any air, you're going to die. And you know what? You try to live with Jesus without anyone else, and you're not going to make it. Why? Because you were created in such a way. God made you in such a way that you need oxygen, you need food, you need water, and you need me and I need you. That's how we were created. We were created in such a way, God created us in such a way that being alone goes against the nature and the fabric of how he made us. He made us to be in community together. God made you to share his love. See, people wonder about Trinity. Why is there Trinity? It's because God is love. And love requires someone to love. 
And even in the beginning, before you and I were here, there was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit living in perfect unity, living in perfect community, living in perfect love together. And the Trinity decided, you know what? Let's create others that we can share this love with. Let's create a people that live like we live. Let's create others in, in our image that we can love them, they can love us, they can experience the love that we have, we have had for all of eternity. And that's why we're here. And so God put a man to experience it. Now, notice, God never comes to knowledge. There's never anything that, that God comes to a revelation, oh, wait, it's not good for him to be alone. I should have made two of them. So why would God have created the man first and put him down and put him down? The first thing he had to do is name all the animals. So basically he said, go see if you can find a partner among all these things I've made. And what happened was the man went through all the animals of the earth and names all the animals of the earth and comes back with the conclusion that none of these are fit to be my partner. Now, some of you love your dog and you love your cat, but they're not fit to be your partner. And if they're your partner and your best friend, find other friends. <laughs> you need other friends. <laughs> I mean, I, I like dogs, I like cats, but they can't be your best friend. And if they are, find another friend. <laughs> Please. You were created for more. You need somebody to talk to that can talk back to you. And if you start to understand your dog and cat, you really are in trouble. <laughs> Call pastor right away. <laughs> And so they come to this coach, yes, th th this, this doesn't fill the void. So God created woman. So now you have on the earth, here's the earth right now. You have God and you have man and woman. And the Bible then lays out the very purpose of creation. Man and woman are the gardeners. They go out and they tend the garden. They take care, make sure everything's taken care of, make sure all the animals are well and fit and everything's going good. And then it says that God would come down in the cool of the night and God would walk in the garden with them. And they just talk with God and they just share their experiences with God and, and the loving God just sharing life and experience with them. That's why you were created to simply walk through the garden of life with God. I mean, that's why you're here, just to walk with God. But because God is a loving God, God by nature had to insert a mechanism that he did not give to the animals because the animals are not in the image of God, but he gave us something specific. He gave none of the other creation, which was the ability of choice. Because if there's no freedom, there is no love. The highest act of love is freedom. And, and for those of you who have children who have turned 16, you understand the fear of freedom. <laughs> the first time you put keys into their hands and they're walking out the door and I'm going to trust you not to be crazy. I'm going to trust you not to do something stupid. But because I love you, I can't keep you locked up at home the rest of your life without choice. And because I love you, I'm going to give you choices and, and I'm going to live with those decisions with you, whatever those choices are. I, I will never stop loving you. I will never stop being there for you. But you're going to have to make a choice because I love you. I'm going to give you choice. 
And so God inserted choice into the Garden of Eden. God inserted that choice because he loves us, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And, and choice, freedom, is the most dangerous of ideas. I mean, if God would have created us more like computers, then you just tap it in and they do what you tell them to do. But you cannot get love from a computer. You cannot get love from a robot. If love requires freedom of choice. So God gave this freedom of choice, this dangerous idea that God from the beginning knew this dangerous idea was going to wreck it for a while, but God had a plan of redemption even from the beginning. But God loved us enough to walk through all of this pain with us. And so man and woman, they go out and they make one of their first choices. And what is that choice? Do you really need God? It, it, God's actually trying to hold you back. God knows if you eat from these trees, he, he knows, and he's trying to hold you back. He's trying to keep something from you. There's good things out there you could have if you just walked away from him and did it on your own. That was the first lie. Your life could actually be better if you play by your own rules. Your life would actually be better if you do it your own way. If you become a God to yourself, then you don't need him, and your life is going to be infinitely better. That was the first choice that they made. And notice this, that choice led to separation from God. So the first effect of sin was not death, it was separation from God. And I want you to notice this. When you are not in right relationship with God, you cannot be in right relationship with one another. If you're not in right relationship with God, you can't be in right relationship with one another. So the man and woman go out, they're separated from God. First two children, Cain and Abel. Cain rises up, kills his brother Abel just over a little argument. He kills it. And God comes along, and again, God asks a question. And remember again, God doesn't ask questions because he needs answers. God asks questions to give us a chance. Cain, are you going to fess up? Are you going to tell the truth? Are you going to acknowledge what you've done? Cain, where is your brother Abel? And how many of you remember the response of Cain? Am I my brother's keeper? You see, this is what sin would lead you to believe. Sin would lead you to believe I am not responsible for you and you're not responsible for me. Sin would lead you to believe that somehow we're different. You're, you're not my responsibility. I just got to take care of me. I don't have to take care of you. You see, sin leads us to believe that we are not responsible for one another. Sin leads to the individualism, individualism that is okay if I have enough to eat and my kids have enough to eat. And even if your kids are starving, I got my food. I'm just responsible for me. I got the gospel. My kids have the gospel. If your kids don't, that's your responsibility. Take care of it. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for them? Am I responsible? And you see, this thinking is woven throughout the Bible. When you're not in right relationship with God, you're not in right relationship with one another. So, brother, 
fights against brother. Family fights against family. City fights against city. Nations fight against nation. People fight against people. Ideologies fight against ideologies. And at the end of it all, the world is at war and people are dying and people are separated because we are no longer thinking of ourselves as a community that is in the presence of God, put here by God to be in right relationship with him so that that relationship would flow out into every relationship of our lives. And then along comes Jesus. And Jesus comes along to tear down this division, to tear down this kind of thinking, to bring us back into right relationship with God so that we can be in right relationship with one another again. And literally, it says when Jesus died, the veil of the temple, the thing that was, that was the, the emblem, the emblem of our separation from God, the veil of the temple was torn, but it wasn't torn from the bottom. It wasn't us opening the way so we can get to God. It was torn from top down. God opened the way for us to come back in. And it's not just for the high priests and special people and people have done the sacrifice. It was opened up. The temple is now open. Everybody come into the Holy of Holies. Come into my presence. Be right with me. Experience my presence. Experience my joy. Let's walk through the garden again. Back to that good state. And I, I want you to notice this, that as soon as people come into right relationship with God, Acts chapter 2 says, God pours out his spirit, this new community is formed, and we love Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, and it says that, man, and all these new people, they come together, they read the Bible together, they prayed together, they basically did church together, and we say, yep, we're the people of God just like them. But let me show you what the Word of God focuses on. Acts chapter 2 and verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Say with me, everything. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Not to my brother, not to my sister, not to my family members, not to my people in my city, not to people in my country. Whoever was in need, they, they literally woke up to this idea, I am my brother's keeper and you're my brother. I am my sister's keeper and you are now my sister. That in Christ, the two that were separate have now become one. And now in Christ, there's no longer male and female and slave and free and Jew and Gentile and American and Indian, that we are one in Christ Jesus. And if we're one, if we're one family, I am my brother's keeper and I'm responsible. They woke up to a new reality. Acts chapter 4, God pours out his spirit again on them. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, when they're filled with the spirit again, verse 32 of Acts 4, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had, verse 33, and God's grace was so powerfully at work on them all that there were no needy persons among them. Man. You think the grace of God is great when blind eyes are open? Let me tell you, it says that the grace of God so powerfully worked in their lives that literally every one of them treated each other like family. You see, that's what you do for family. That's what you do for family. 
The issue is, I just got to decide who's my family. I mean, if my brother's in the hospital and he's dying, then uh, I'm going to do what I have to do for my brother. I mean, if I have to sell my car, if I have to mortgage, if I have to take a loan, I'm going to do. Why? Because he's my brother, because he's my family, he's my responsibility. So then it's just a matter of waking up to who's my responsibility. So my wife and I have been in India for uh, many years, and uh, in the middle of all that, we felt like God wanted us to go to Laos, and Laos is this closed communist country, and we went and lived in Laos for six years. And while I was in Laos, one day I'm living, I lived in this little small village and people had, you know, thatch roof huts around us. And, uh, and one of my neighbors, he was really sick, super poor, no money. He literally had two pants and two shirts. That's all he owned. Very poor. And I noticed his health is just breaking. And I can just see him like really, like, you know, he, he went from being strong and healthy to just uh, within months, he was just down to nothing. He can barely walk anymore. And so I wanted to help him, but I didn't want to embarrass him. I wanted him to help keep dignity. And the worst thing we can do sometime is uh, just go to people who are sick and just say, hey, I've got money you don't. Let me take you to the hospital. So I went up to him, and uh, my son was sick that day. So I went up to him, and I said, hey, can you help me out? You're an elder in the village, and you know people, and uh, I've got to take my son to the hospital. He's been sick. Would you go with me to help me get my son in the hospital and help him get a checkup? You, you know people at the hospital. And he said, yes, I'd love to help you. So he goes and changed his shirt to his good shirt, took his dirty shirt off, put his good shirt on, and gets in the car, and we go to the hospital, and he goes in, and, and uh, he's calling nurses over and, you know, getting things done and brings a doctor in and helps me out, and they give my son some medicine. And then I said to him, I said, hey, as long as we're here, you've been such a blessing to to me, I would, I'd love to return the blessing on your life. Would you, uh, why don't we, while you're here, why don't you just get a checkup too? And just, can I please do that for you? You've helped me so much. So he said, oh, that's great. So they do some checkups and they do some blood work. A few days later, I bring him back for us to look at the blood work. And when we walk back in, the doctor looks at the blood work and he looks at him. And then he looks again at the reports and looks at me and said, I'm sorry, nothing I can do. Take him home and let him die. And uh, I said, what? What do you mean take him home and let him die? He said, uh, listen, these reports show his uh, kidneys are failing. And uh, there's no reason for me to get false hope. He said, this man has no money. He has no ability to get any help. We, we don't have facilities in this town. He would have to drive to Thailand 12 hours away to the nearest hospital. He'd have to drive to that hospital to get help. It would cost thousands of dollars to get it. He has no money. He has no car. He has no ability. Better for him to die at peace with his family than for me to give him false hope. And so I asked the doctor, I said, how much money are we talking about? And he gave me a figure that the starting price was like $20,000. I thought, man, I don't have $20,000. So we get in the truck to go home. We're driving home and uh, we get to our little mud lane where we live and I park the car. He lives on one side of the lane. I live on the other and I told him, I said, Mr. Oat, I said, I, man, I'm just so sorry. I wish there was something I could do. But I said, I tell you what, every day from here on out, I'm going to pray every night. I'm going to pray for Jesus to heal you. I believe he's a healer. I believe he can heal you. I'm going to be believing with you for Jesus to heal you. And I prayed for him then. He was a staunch Buddhist. He goes into his house. I go to my house. That night, 
I'm uh, laying on my bed reading a book, and I fall asleep reading the book. And I woke up, then, and I thought, oh, I promised him I'd pray for him every night. This is the first night, and I already forgot. So I thought this series, so I get down beside my bed, and I kneel down, and I start to pray, God, would you please heal my neighbor? You know he has no money. He has no ability to get treatment. He, he, you're the only hope he's got. God, would you please heal my neighbor? And as soon as I said it, I felt the Spirit of God speak to me, just a still small voice. And the Lord just asked me a question. What would you do if he was your father? And I started thinking to myself, man, if he's my father, I wouldn't let him die. Even if there was a small chance of his living, I mean, like, I'd, I'd take out a loan. I'd mortgage my house. I'd borrow money. I'd write letters. I'd, I'd do what I ever had to do, but I couldn't live with myself if I just let my father die. And I just felt the Spirit speak to me and said, treat him like he's your father. So the next day I wake up, and I go over to his house, and I walk in. He's laying there in the bed, and I said, Mr. Oat, I said, I'm sorry. I, I didn't treat you right yesterday. I told you I couldn't help, but I can help. Since I've come to this village, you, you've been like a father to me. You've helped me, and I'm going to treat you like I would treat my father, and I wouldn't let my father die, and I can't let you die. Get ready. This week, we're driving to Thailand. We're going to go to the hospital. So that started the process over the next three years of uh, of uh, once a month, we would go to Thailand and we would do treatment for a week and he'd do dialysis and he'd do all these things and we'd drive back and then uh, we'd get ready again the next month, we'd go back. And so once a month, we were going back and forth and uh, I maxed out all my credit cards and took out a few loans here and there. And uh, But at the end of the story, he's still alive. 10 years later, he's still, he's still alive today. But three years into this, um, we felt like the Lord leading us back to India. So I went to him one day, and I took one of my Lao friends, introduced him. I said, listen, this is my friend. He's going to be taking over for me. He's going to be the one taking you to the hospital. Uh, I've given him the credit card. He's going to keep paying for everything. He'll make sure you're taken care of. And so, so don't worry. We're, we're still going to be there, but uh, I'm leaving. The next morning, I get up. I pack up my truck. We're getting ready to go to the airport. And uh, one of the neighbor kids comes and gets me and said, Mr. Holt wants to see you before you leave. And so I go over to his house. I mean, I'd just been with him the night before. I go over to his house, and he sits up in his bed. By this time, he can barely walk anymore. He sits up in his bed. He said, I just want you to know before you go, he said, you're my son. I think of you like my son. He said, and because you're my family, I want your God to be my God. Would you pray with me? I want to follow Jesus. And his wife stepped around the corner and said, you're my son too. And I want to follow Jesus too. And both of them asked Jesus to come and be the Lord of their lives that day. And there's a church in their house today. They're leading others to the Lord today. Just because of a simple thing to treat the world like family. Now, now your first response to this may be, you just can't do that for everybody. My retort to you would be, start with somebody. <laughs> start with somebody. Start with somebody in your life, in your community that is desperate, that you're going to say, I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. I am responsible. It's not somebody else's responsibility. 
You know, sometimes we want to say, we just preach the gospel. We don't deal with that stuff. Then you're not preaching the gospel. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a transformation that takes place so deeply within us that it is impacted out of us to those around us. And if people around you are not being impacted with the gospel that you say within you, then you do not have the gospel of Jesus Christ in you. Because the gospel affects people around you. There is an Old Testament story that lays this out. You see, one of the reasons it's so hard for us to find good is because good is rarely about you. <laughs> That's why good's hard to find. Good is hard to find because it's not about me and it's not about you. The good that God wants to enact in your life is the transformation of people around you, not your wealth, your health, your prosperity. And so when I'm not wealthy, when I'm not healthy, when I'm not prosperous, I wonder where is God's goodness because I'm not looking through God's lens. There's an Old Testament story that helps us to see it. There was this guy named Joseph. How many of you remember Joseph? Here's Joseph one day. He goes out to see his brothers, and his brother beat him. They throw him into a well, and they're deciding how to kill him. Let me tell you, when you're beaten and thrown into the bottom of a well, sometimes good is hard to find. Can somebody say amen? And then his brothers sell him into slavery. Let me tell you, when you've been sold into slavery, good can be challenging to find. And then while he's in slavery, he's sold to a family. And this family, this woman falsely accuses him of trying to molest him. And now he's thrown into prison. Let me tell you, when you're falsely accused and thrown into prison, good can be really hard to find. And then in prison, two men come to him. They were servants of the king. They're thrown into prison. They have dreams. And I want you to notice the confidence of Joseph after being beaten by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused, and thrown into prison. These men have dreams. And he simply looks at him and says, my God interprets dreams. Man, that confidence, that knowing, we know that in all things. Huh. All this has happened, but God is still good. God is still who he said he is. Even if my life doesn't reflect it today, I know God is good, and I know God does everything for good, and I'm going to be okay, and everything's going to be all right. I've been through all of this, but God's still good, and I'm still serving him. Yeah, you got dreams? Tell them to me. God interprets dreams, and he interprets the dreams of these two men, and all he asks is, don't forget me when you get out, and now he's forgotten. And I can tell you the worst of all torments is to be forgotten, to feel like nobody knows, nobody cares, nobody remembers. And here he is, this forgotten man in prison, and yet God had not forgotten him. And then there's a day that the king of Egypt has a dream. This one of the servants that had been set free tells him, hey, I met a man in prison who can interpret dreams. They bring Joseph out of the prison. He stands before the king, interprets the dream of the king, and all of a sudden the king says, you are now the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. He gives him the ring, says, take control, rule the nation, help us to overcome this famine. And now Joseph now went from the bottom to the very top. Then years later, there's a famine in the land. They're only living because of Joseph. And I want you to notice this. God allowed Joseph to be beaten, thrown into a prison, 
sold into slavery. He allowed him to be falsely accused, allowed him to be thrown into the prison, allowed him to be forgotten so that he could be at the right place at the right time so that nations could be saved. And because Joseph went through what he went through to get through where God needed him, Egypt was saved, Saudi Arabia was saved, Israel was saved, Jordan was saved, Morocco, all the nations around them, Ethiopia, all the nations around them were saved because God was working good even when Joseph couldn't see it. And then along come his brothers one day, Israel. God's people, they come along, and they're dying. They have no food. And then many of you know the story of how Joseph then reveals himself to his brothers, and his brothers are terrified. He's going to kill us. He's going to do to us what we tried to do to him. He's going to kill us. And I want you to listen to Joseph's response, Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. And Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about this day to save many people. You see, the God, the good that God means is always to save many people. The good that God looks for is not a bigger house and your job prospering and your house being better and your life being better and having more money. That is not the good that God is looking for. God is looking for a good where his kingdom is established so that more lives are saved, more lives are changed, more people experience the joy and the peace that only comes in the presence of Jesus Christ. But as long as you think good is only about you, good is going to be really hard to find. But when you start to wake up to the idea, good is not about me. Good is what God desires to do through me. Good is the lives God desires to touch around me. This is the good that God desires. This is the good God desires. So even in the middle of of COVID, even in the middle of losing a job, even in the middle of sickness, even in the middle of foreclosure, even in the middle of debt, even in the middle of sickness and death, we can look around us and say, God, I know that in all things, God, you are working for the good of those who love you. And God, we love you, and we know whatever circumstance comes our way, that God is going to turn for your good, that lives can be changed. When I was 20 years old, I was an alcoholic. I had no hope. I had no peace. I had no purpose. When I was a young man, 15, I started drinking really heavily. I started doing drugs. It came out of pain. My mom, when I was a teenager, fed me breakfast one morning and walked out of the house, and I didn't see my mom again. She left. About six months later, my dad met somebody else, and... Uh, he came home and informed me that, uh, you know, this, uh, I'm moving in with this other lady and she's got kids and there's no room, but you'll be okay. You can take care of yourself. You're, you're grown now. And my dad left. And so I was alone and I had so much pain. I had so much anger, so much bitterness. I turned to drinking, turned to drugs, turned to violence. My life was out of control. And then when I was 20 years old, the Lord found me. 
He changed me. He gave me life. He gave me hope. He turned my world around. And I can tell you that all things work for the good of those who love him. Even through that bitterness and pain, it wasn't just me that the Lord was saving. God loved my family. Pastor mentioned five years after getting saved, he started preaching. I preached my first sermon three months after I got saved. Three months after I got saved, this uh, old Baptist pastor saw me, and he walks up to me, and he said, hey, I heard you got saved. I said, yes, sir. I was, you know, I'm from a small little town about like your town where everybody knows everybody's business. That's about being from a small town. Everybody knows your business. And so this old pastor walks up to me and said, hey, I heard you got saved. I said, yes, sir. He said, I pastor this little Baptist church. We're having youth night Sunday night. I don't have any youth in my church. God just spoke to me. You're supposed to preach in my church Sunday night. So get ready. I was like, whoa, wait, I don't know anything about it. I said, I'm a plumber. If you got pipe stopped up or something, I can help you, but I don't know anything about preaching. He said, I'm telling you, God spoke to me. You're supposed to preach. And I thought, well, he knows God better than me. Maybe I am. So, so Sunday night I show up, and uh, he had gone all over town that week, told everybody that didn't know that I got saved. He went and found my family, found my mother, found my brother, found my grandfather, my grandmother, he found all my family scattered out across our town and said, hey, the least you can do for him, I know you guys don't talk anymore, the least you can do for him is come to church and hear him and support him, at least on this day was his first sermon. So he drug my whole family into church. So I walk into church, and without me knowing it, I get to the front row, and I look, and there's my mom on the second row. I had not seen my mom since the day she walked out of the house. Stood up that day, preached my very first sermon. And all I remember about is at the end of saying the same God who changed my life. He's here today. He'll change your life. My mom jumped up out of her seat and ran down and gave her heart to the Lord. My mom is uh, teaching Sunday school in a church today. My brother and sister-in-law came down and gave their hearts to the Lord. My brother is a deacon in a church today. My uh, nephew is uh, now a missionary serving with us in India today. Years later, my father gave his heart to the Lord and pastored the last three years of his life. The good that God desiring wasn't just me. It was a family being saved. That was the good. The good that God desired was then being in Bible school. My pastor, uh, Pastor Richard Crisco, who used to be at Brownsville, he, uh, I got saved and ended up moving to Pensacola. He took me in and uh, discipled me for a year, put me in the church van, took me to Southeastern College, dropped me off at Bible school. My first year of Bible school, I had a professor. Her name was Sister Ruth Bruch, who was a retired missionary to India. And one day in class, she's talking about India, five 100,000 villages where there's not a church. A billion people who've never heard the gospel. And I went up to her after class and I said, Sister Bruce, this, this can't be right. How's it possible? I mean, I don't know much, but didn't Jesus say 2,000 years ago, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all people? How'd we fail so miserably? How, how'd this happen? This can't be right. And she says, I've been there. I live there. I'm telling you this is the situation. I said, somebody needs to do something about it. She said, I agree with you. I said, well, how about me? She said, how about you? I said, I'm ready. Send me. I'm ready to go. She said, I don't have any money. I said, well, introduce me to somebody with money. 
David Grant, a missionary to India, was there on campus. She took me over to him and introduced me to him. He helped me buy my first ticket, and I've been in India ever since, still waiting on my call. Maybe one day God will call me. Until then, I'm just, I'm just on a volunteer basis until I get my call. Because I just felt that deep sense of responsibility. I am my brother's keeper. I am responsible. Somebody needs to do something, and it might as well be me. And so I went. When I got to India, I found out the history of the Assemblies of God in India. The Assemblies of God in India was founded in 1918 by a man named Christian Schoonmaker. He uh, had been an independent missionary, got filled with the Spirit, started the Assemblies of God, and he and about 10 Indian pastors, they came together, they formed the Assemblies of God. He became the first general superintendent of the Assemblies of God. Six months later, he got smallpox. He's in his house. His widow now can't be beside him. She's pregnant with their sixth child. And a few months later, he dies without ever meeting his sixth child. His wife now has a decision. They send her a letter. Violet, as soon as your child is healthy enough, you need to get on the boat and come home. You got six kids. You got to take care of your kids now. It's a three-month boat ride back from India. Violet, you need to come home. And the records show she sent a one-line telegram. My call did not die with my husband. And for the next 32 years of her life, she raised six children as a widow on the field, preaching the gospel, continuing the work of God. Five of her children went on to become missionaries to India. And today in India, there are over 7,000 churches, Seminary of God churches across India, over a million people today who worship in those churches, over 25,000 house churches across India today because of somebody who found good in the midst of a difficult time. Somebody who chose to find good. Her son, Paul Schoonmaker, went. They asked him to go to Iran. He went to Iran, and he was preaching in Iran, and he got hepatitis. He's dying now in Iran by himself. His family's back in India, and he's dying. The missionary fellowship in Iran, this was back before the, when, uh, back before the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, when there were still missionaries in Iran. And so, so uh, one of the missionaries, a young missionary who just got to Iran, they sent him, his name was Mark Bliss, and they sent him there to sit with uh, Paul Schoonmaker. And one night, he said, you could just tell, he was dying. His breath got short. And Mark Bliss asked him, he said, Paul, is there anything I can do for you? He said, I just want to sing one more song. And he said in a strong voice, he started to sing, My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. And that song ends, the very end of that song. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Right now, dying in a hospital away from my family alone and seemingly forsaken and forgotten, if ever I love you. Jesus, right now I love you more than ever. And he died. Mark Bliss later, he became a friend of mine, and I knew him in his older age. He told me about that, and he said that was so impactful in my life. He said years later there was a young Iranian pastor, and I went out to preach in a village, and there was an accident. A tractor came out in front of us, 
and my two children and Pastor Josepian's two children, all four of our children died in that accident. He said, according to Sharia law, there was a court, and it's eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood. And so standing before this Islamic court, they asked Brother Bliss, Pastor Hike, what would you have us to do to this man that caused this accident that took their life? If you demand it, we will behead him right now. And they stood up and said, we are servants of Jesus Christ. We know it was an accident. And as the Lord has forgiven us, we forgive him. We give him back his life. Go in peace. And we pray that the love of Jesus would fill your heart, that you would have peace in your life. Don't live in regret. Walk with Jesus. They said this in an Islamic court. That man went back, told his village about it, and that became the first Christian village in Iran. Pastor Hike went on to become the first superintendent of the Assemblies of God of Iran. And then he also became the first martyr in Iran. They killed him because the church was growing. His predecessor stepped up. A year later, a new man was elected. He served for less than a year, and he was also martyred. The third superintendent was elected, and then he was martyred. And it's a tradition that goes on today. But today in Iran, it is believed that over 5 million Iranians have come to faith in the last 10 years. Iran is the fastest growing church in all the world today because of a people who found good in the midst of difficult times. And the church is growing. And then I got to Bible school. And I've got a professor, Sister Ruth Bruch, who's inspiring me for India. And I found out she was the sixth child of Christian Schoonmaker, born to a widowed mother, a father she never met. But in spite of the pain of difficulty, she found good. She served the Lord. She inspired me and my wife. And now the legacy continues today because of a person who found good in the midst of difficulty. Let me tell you, there's a world outside of these walls that is waiting on hope. And as long as good is about you, they're never going to find it. Because I can promise you this, it will never be good for you to go to Afghanistan. It's never going to be good for you to move into an inner city area. It's never going to be good for you to make a friendship with a meth addict. Because they don't have problems during normal hours of the day like normal people. They have problems at 3 o'clock in the morning and on the weekends and when you'd really like to have a break. And uh, you, you get involved with broken people and they break you. So as long as good is about us, we will never be in community and contact with those who really need Jesus the most. But our master and our Lord Jesus set the example of, for us of what it means that all things work together for good. That our Lord came down to this earth and he was a friend of drunkards and sinners. He sat with the broken and the hurting. He gave his life. He allowed a crown of thorns on his head. He carried a cross. He allowed the nails. He was buried and broken so that we could have life. He accepted pain and hurt so that we could experience good. And this is the example that Jesus sets for us every day.
This is the example that he sets for us. Good is hard to find if good is about you. But when we start to turn it around, good is about God and his kingdom. It is about lives being changed. It is about people flourishing in Christ, finding hope and life in Christ. The equation starts to change. That pain plus agony equals good. Loss plus desperation, it equals good. All things work for the good, those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I used to go up into this valley and preach the gospel. I was up in this valley one day, and uh, we come into a village, and uh, next thing I know, rocks start flying, and fists start flying, and uh, it's a full-scale riot. It was just about six of us. We're just there passing out tracks, preaching to people, and just a riot takes place. Now, I know some of you are very brave, and some of you are just ready to lay down your lives, but when the rocks started flying, we all started running, <laughs> So we're heading off down the hill. Some of you say, oh, you're not supposed to be afraid. Let me tell you, you've never been scared because you've never been in the right situation. It's easy to be a Christian who's brave sitting in church in America. You just put yourself in the right situation. Bravery is not the absence of fear. Bravery and courage is doing what you even need to do even when you're terrified. So we're running down this hill, and rocks are flying. There's a bridge between us, and so we cross the bridge. It's just a little walk bridge where there's this river. We cross the bridge, and they stopped on their side, so it gave us time to stop. Now we stop. We're looking for, you know, where we, where's the blood coming from, and where are we bleeding from, and who's hurt. And so some people got their shirts ripped, and we're looking at them and trying to make sure everybody's okay. And in the middle of all this, the men of the village come down in front of us on their side of the bridge, and they start sending the kids up in the village, and they come down, and they start bringing all the literature we'd given, all the Bibles, all the tracts, and they start a fire, and they just start burning it right in front of us. They take some of this literature, these, these Bibles, and they rip them up, and they throw them in the river. And uh, this little kid comes down to the edge of the river, and he's standing there, and he's got this small New Testament in his hand. He looks over, and I'm across the river, and I can't hear him. The river's raging, but he points a finger at me, and you could just see, you know, he's just cursing me, and there's an elder behind him with his hands on his shoulders, and, and then he tears this Bible up, and he throws it into the river. And the elder was, like, very satisfied with this, so he just pats him on the shoulder and just walks away. And little kid just stares at him. Now he's having a staring contest with me. He's just sitting there, and he's just looking at me. And after a while of looking at me, he looks over his shoulder, he looks this way, and then he unbuttons his jacket and opens it up, and in the pocket of his jacket, he had another New Testament. And he winked at me like this, and he shuts his jacket, and he runs away. <laughs> 20 years later, by now we got a Bible school up in the hills of India. We got over 50 churches in this area. I went in this area. There was no churches now we have 50 churches in the area. In that valley, we still have never had a church. There's 20 villages in this valley. We've never had a church. It's always been oppressive to the gospel. Then one day, I'm in our Bible school, and every year at the beginning of Bible school, I sit down with all the new students. Where are you from? What's your name? You know, how'd you come to the Lord? I'm talking to this guy, and I said, what's your name? He said, my name is Yabez. And I said, well, where are you from? He said, I'm from the Harkidun, from that village. 
And I just said, like, man, this, this is unbelievable. Tell, tell me how you came to the Lord. He said, well, my family arranged my marriage with a girl from another village. And this girl from the other village, she had, uh, she had heard about Jesus. And then we got married and we got sick. And then one day my wife told me, you know what? I heard about this God named Jesus, and I heard he heals people. Let's pray. And so we prayed, and Jesus healed us. And so we decided we're going to follow Jesus, but we didn't know how. We didn't know what to tell people. And then uh, I came to the city to look, and somebody told me about your school. And so we're here to get ready because we want to go back and tell our people about Jesus. For a year, we prayed together. We taught them the Bible, and they went back. I mean, it's a long way up in the hills from my house. About a year later, I was finally able to get back to where they were, and I went up to meet him. And I sat with him, and I said, well, tell me what's happening. We're sitting up on top of the mountain. You can see all 20 villages of the valley, all across this valley. I said, well, tell me what the Lord has done. And he said, well, you see that village over there? And I said, yeah. And he said, and you see that village over there? He said, those are the only two villages where we don't have churches in the valley now. Because God works all things to the good of those who love him those who are called according to his purpose. Sometimes it takes 20 years, but God works all things to the good. You may not see it. You may not understand it, but you can know God is good. He created everything good. Everything he does works towards his good. And you can know today, no matter what your circumstance, that God is working in you and through you to express his good to the world. You can know it today. You can know it today. And let me tell you, I'm going to close with this. This is God's greatest good. Revelation 7, 9 and 10, if you can just stand with me. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the good that God is working for. Every tribe, every nation, every people, every language experiencing life and hope in Christ. For God is not willing that anyone not any of your family members, not anyone in Kinsman, in Cortland, not anyone in America, not anyone in India, not anyone in Saudi Arabia, not anyone in Afghanistan, not anyone in France, that anyone would perish, but that everyone would have life and hope in Jesus Christ. This is God's good. This is the good that God is working for. The question is this. Whose good are you working for? Whose good are you living for? You know, my sons, my sons have had struggles. I was telling pastor this morning, coming back to America from India has been very hard for them. Life is just so different. The church is so different. Everything is upside down. And 
my children have struggled coming back to America. And I can tell you this, when my children are struggling, nobody ever has to remind me to pray. I mean, I go to bed at night sometimes just grieving. God, help my children to adjust, to understand. Sometimes in the middle of the night, I wake up. Last night, I woke up in the middle of the night praying for my sons. God, help them. First thing in the morning, I wake up. They're on my mind. On the way to church today, I prayed the whole way to church. Why? Because I am my son's keeper. There are sons and daughters in places like Jordan, Syria, Yemen, Germany, Italy, the jungles of the Amazon. There are sons and daughters around the world today that they don't have a father who knows Jesus. They don't have someone to remember. And so that's why we got to send out these messages. Hey, remember to pray for Haiti. Remember to pray for Afghanistan. I, I know it's not on your mind, but remember to pray. Why? Because we are not our brother's keeper. They're not our responsibility. Somebody else takes care of that. They're not mine. And I want to tell you today, your sons and your daughters, your brothers and your sister, your mother, your father, your aunts, your uncles, you are their keeper. You're responsible. Kinsman, Cortland, Ohio, you are your people's keeper. America, Mexico, Canada, you are responsible. You are their keeper. And for the nations around, we're responsible. Only question is, what are we going to do about it? And again, I know that seems big. That seems like, man, what can I do about that? And I just want to remind you, start with somebody. Start with somebody. Some of you are going back to school. There are children, young people in your schools who are suicidal. They have no friends. Walk away from your table and sit with someone who's alone because you are your brother's keeper. You're responsible. Your coworker that is depressed, you are your coworker's keeper. We're responsible to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ until this could be said of Kinsman, Ohio. There was not one needy person among them because the church lived out the gospel of Jesus Christ. They took care of one another. They sold what they had to sell. They made sure. And one day, I believe it will be said, and there was not one person in all the world who had not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ because the church took up the mantle and said, we are our brother's and sister's keeper. I want you to lift your hands today and ask the Lord, Lord, change my heart. Lord, change my heart. I want these words to sweep over you. Just think of this as a prayer and an admonition today. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. 
not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Good. The greatest good that ever happened was the cross. Jesus laid down his good so that you and I could experience God's best. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us today because I know it is not in our nature to think of others before we think of ourselves. Lord, it is in our nature to think small, to think of our responsibilities only in the sense of who's in my house, my mother, my father, my brothers, sisters, my children, my wife, my husband. We think of responsibility very small. And that is what sin has done to us, to, to, to think small. But Lord Jesus, you came to free us to tear down the walls of division, not only between us and you, but to tear down the walls of division of one another. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to love the children around us as much as we love our own children, to pray for the hurting in our community as we would for our very own sons and daughters. Lord, to love unconditionally the way that you do. So, Lord, I pray today that you would increase our capacity for love. Increase our capacity of responsibility and concern. And I pray that this week it would start right here, right now. Lord, I believe in time that this can end up in people from this community going out to people all over the world who've never had a chance, who are broken and lost and finding hope. But I pray this week it start in this community. It would start in this community as we begin to look around us for brothers and sisters that are hurting and broken, that we can intersect our lives with them so they can experience the goodness that you desire for them. Even if it costs us, even if it means us selling, and even if it means us laying down and losing. But God, we want to see your good happen. Lord, we need you today. Lord, we need you today. I just want to open up these altars for just a moment. Just to those of you say, that would be honest and say, man, that seems hard. Let me tell you, it is. It's hard. The hardest thing you'll ever do is to die to yourself. The hardest thing you'll ever do is to die to your ambition and your desire. The hardest thing you'll ever do is die to your good and determine, I'm not going to live for my good any longer. I'm going to live for the good of others. I'm going to live for the good of my community, live for the good of my nation, live for the good of the nations around us, live for the good of the ends of the earth. God, I want to live for your good. I want to do it. I want to be my brother's keeper, but I can't do it without you because it's not in my nature. But God, if you will help me, Lord, I determine today, yes, I will be my brother's keeper. I will be my sister's keeper. If you, if you want to ask for the Lord's help today,
just to come and offer yourself and say, God, I want to be my brother's keeper. So God, would you change my heart and help me to be more like you? I want you just to come right now for just a moment. Pastor Mark's going to be coming up now to close us and uh, just want to give you an opportunity. Father, we need your help. Lord, this is not something we can do in our own strength. Lord, we have lived for our good every day of our life. Lord, we want to live for the good of others. Lord, we're happy for what you're doing. Lord, a church that is full and vibrant and excited. And Lord, we could just rejoice in that, but we also remember those who aren't at the table today. Lord, we remember that we don't have to go far to find broken people. We don't have to go far to find families that are falling apart. We don't have to go far to find young people addicted to to drugs, hopeless. We don't have to go far to find suicidal, lost people. They're right here. They're all around us. And so, Lord, we just ask you today, God, would you give us eyes to see the way that you see? Give us eyes to see. Lord, many times we're like the disciples telling the blind, just keep quiet. But Jesus, you hear the voice of the broken even when it's inconvenient. And so, God, I pray that you would just break through in our lives, that you would open our hearts, and I pray that the effects would be felt in this community, that the people of this community would know, they would know that there are a people at Rock of Grace. There are a people who care, who love, who are concerned. Lord, I pray that it would not only affect this community, but affect the world. So, Lord, would you help us today? Would you help us today? We confess we are weak. We are often selfish, self-consumed, self-absorbed. But, Lord, through your help, all things are possible. And, God, I pray that you would help us those who are going through difficult moments today, help them with that knowing today. Help them with that knowing today that we know all things. We know all things work together for the good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So whatever we're going through today, Lord, we're going to fix our eyes on you, knowing that you're desiring to bring good through this. And your good is the saving of many lives. Let many lives be changed in Jesus' name.